Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. I'm your host, Richard Schur. In this podcast, I speak with Tim Anderson, the author of Popular Music in a Digital Music Economy, Problems and Practices for an Emerging Surface Industry. Anderson's book examines how the digitization of music, webcasting, MP3s, and other technologies are transforming the recording industry. These changes are forcing both labels and musicians to develop alternative models for making money. Our conversation examines the effect of Pandora and Spotify on music production and distribution. We also explore the effect of 360 deals on current artists such as Paramore and Lupe Fiasco, and how those deals might have affected earlier bands like the Ramones. In the last portion of the interview, we discuss music licensing in films and television programs. Hello. Hello. Hey, Tim. This is uh, Richard Schur from the, the New Books Podcast, and we're excited to be talking to you today. Oh, thanks. I'm happy um, to be here. Well, you've written this great book, Popular Music in the Digital Music Economy, and can you maybe uh, tell us a little bit why you wrote this book and maybe a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, um, let's start with the last question first. Um, I'm an associate professor at um, Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. And uh, I've been doing research on popular music for all my academic career. Uh, Got my PhD at Northwestern in radio, television, film, and uh, did some really. uh, I was I was kind of lucky to be there, and maybe I'll go into that later. But it was a really good time to study popular music in the early '90s, Uh, and and not just because it was the early '90s. There was a confluence of people there who. who really influenced my thought substantially, and some of them, many of them, are graduate students who uh, who've gone on to do uh, other and better things. Um, but the the book itself sort of is a continuum in, in a weird way. I um I didn't expect to write this book at all because uh, my my training was more historical. My first book is on. Um, a transformation from the economy of uh, of print and performance popular music uh, economy to one that's uh, based on recordings and a lot of the attendant problems that went with that. Um, some uh, many of those were labor problems. Uh, many of those were also uh, uh, issues that surrounded uh, new experiences in sound, namely uh, stereo and high fidelity. And uh, I thought, well, I'd love to explore that, and I still hope to continue to explore that in in some of my work. I'm really interested in anything that's kind of a a new thrust in popular music for a lot of reasons. Uh, But around 2005, you know, it was pretty clear that you you could no longer ignore the the cumulative uh, efforts of – Silicon Valley, you just, you know, like I, I waited for a long time to get my first iPod and I kept waiting and waiting because I just didn't want to, uh, to do it. I, I, I'm kind of reluctant that way because I, you know, I've, I've been studying music. I'm 45. I've been uh, collecting records since I was 13 and, uh, you know, old habits die fat, die hard. So I finally got into it and it really uh, was fascinating to me, all these things that were happening. And I think the thing that really was, was great was during that time 
you get and you get this still to this day in um in uh Silicon Valley you get a lot of everybody who offers that they have the solution everybody has the solution there's there's these really great pronouncements and I think you have to be to be an entrepreneur you have to sort of have that self confidence and so they'd give a solution then it would just fail and I love that. I love that aspect of it. That uh, not because they're failing, because we all fail. That's, but the, the fact that everybody was experimenting, and they, they were clear that this experiment was going to work. There's something very, uh, uh, lack of a t- better term, like Popperian out of it. Like if you studied uh, the works of Karl Popper and the, you know, the way that that he always thought about how history of science worked, that we're going to just throw a whole bunch of experiments to the wall and see what sticks. I mean, I know that's not doing uh, justice to his, to his theories, but I like that idea. So um, around 2006, two, around 2006, I left a position that I was at for a, a number of years, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And um, and uh, I'd, I'd been I'd been slowly building some some work in another. Uh, I was slowly building research in another work uh, on on uh, Soul Train, but it was clear that that this was breaking. Like this was could no longer be ignored. And I went to an interview, and in the interview, somebody sort of put a, a question to me: If you're going to write about uh, Soul Train or the new music economy, because I'd been writing these little blog pieces here and there for things like Flow and. Uh, and I, at the time, I was running my own blog, which I've since sort of abandoned. And I said, uh, I, I think I would write about the new music economy because it's happening right now. And you just don't get a chance to live through too many uh, revolutionary moments in anything. And um, someone who's interested in popular music, this has been uh, quite simply a revolution in, in, in the, the clearest sense of the term. So uh, I was like, well, I, I got to document this. And then uh, – I took this job at Old Dominion. I got a, a, a really nice gig. And, and in a, you know, if you have international listeners here, they'll scoff at this because I've actually said this before in England and people laugh. But I only live four hours from Washington, D.C., which in, in American terms means it's right up the road. And um, that was really great because the Future Music Coalition, which I, uh, which I allude to in the, in the thank yous, is, uh, has been absolutely essential to this. They, uh, they bring together – you know, like last year, that Peter Jenner, who I quote in the book, he was there. I met him there. Uh, I, you know, it's like I had no idea. I was sitting next to Rock Royalty because he doesn't present himself that way. You know, Sandy Perlman's there, the producer for the Second Clash record and a lot of Blue Oyster Cult records. A real smart guy, Casey Ray, who I cite in the book. There's this really unassuming guy from D.C. but knows tons about you know licensing and he's testified in front of congress and it's just you know being right up down the road from that i was like wow i'm in this advantageous position uh and i'd already interviewed tim westergren about th- two or three years earlier when he came through columbus um he had actually come and tim westergren if, if you for those mm-hmm. of your listeners who don't know is the ceo of um or was the I think he was the president of uh, the, the terms like back, go back and forth of, of Pandora, and uh, certainly the public face of Pandora, and he went on a tour in 2005 from place to place to place, literally like a barnstorming tour. He would go from um, he would go to these like I saw him at an artist co-op. This is no lie. This is a guy who runs Pandora shows up at an artist co-op and does an interview for me in the hallway. The interview doesn't work. Like it, it didn't record well. And then I called him from a Motel Six. He had no problem at the time. He's since gone public, right? He's got an IPO, 
and uh, he can't uh, you can't really get to him that easily anymore. <laughs> but wow. but he was really generous. He was extremely generous with his time. I mean, you can't that that was huge. So it was a confluence of things. So saying why I did it, it was like uh, right place, right time. Well, one of the things that that can be a bit daunting when you get into this topic is just defining terms. And so how would you even define the digital music economy? Oh, yeah, that's a huge one. Um, it's it's really big, but basically it's sort of what I deal with in the first chapter, which is uh, it's an economy based around users and rather than audiences. And that seems like a real fine term. That seems like a term that that like, yeah, well, if you're a user, you're part of the audience. It's like, no, you're not really. Because um, an audience can do all kinds of things. They can uh, – be present. They can uh, they can actually uh, collectively talk back. They can, you know, you can, in fact, uh, one of the things that audiences do is that they consume. They t- they've historically uh, not only consumed performances live, but uh, they've 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 done a they've done a they've been the lead into consumption, like uh, the consumption of objects. So you know, audiences go they hear live music or they listen to something on the radio, and then they would turn into consumers and consume. Objects, so it's like an object-oriented economy where you mass-produced objects, and, and in the past that could be uh, a sheet music. So you might have somebody come to your door and 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 have a a passel of, of sheet music, and they would bring out some sheet music and play it for you in your parlor, and then you'd buy the ones that you like. Or maybe if you went to Macy's, you'd hear somebody demonstrating this in the 1940s or 30s, and you'd buy the 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 hits from the hit parade and take them home and play them. Uh, but you were buying sheets. You were buying mass-produced sheets, and that changed to uh, to records, and recordings, and recorded units. And uh, once Napster hit, Napster uh, you know, obviously gave us a peer-to-peer. But the but the economy changed away from objects quickly, rather quickly. Within about three years, you can just see the the collapse of CD sales around two thousand two, two thousand three. It just starts to it's like free fall. And uh, people are doing more digital downloads, which is part of it. But the big money is not in digital downloads. It's oh, That's part of it. It's in data. And um, understanding what you're using, why you're using it, and how you can be targeted. So what we've seen here slowly but surely are um, – is is an economy that's based on on uh, on deep research on usage, who the users are, who their social networks are, uh, what their connections are, what their um, you know uh, when they use, why they use. So like you know something like iTunes, that interface that all I, I mean I use it all the time. That's an interface on my on my computer that many people think is the portal to uh, to buying music or ripping music or whatever. Is really uh, a portal to uh, to data aggregation. Well, one thing that's that's important here, and you talk a little bit about in your book, and I think it probably ties into your, your sort of your, your first book, and that is: is this the first time that the music industry had to deal with a major change in technology that changed its model? Oh no, absolutely not. I mean, um, while I'm not such a deep historian that I could I could speak with such uh, certainty about uh, about print economies. I mean, if we were to go back to look at you know the first commercializers of music or, or publishers, and and that's clearly because of of uh, the, the the Gutenberg uh, press, right? You know that any kind of a block press revolution, and where you were able to mass produce uh, these manuscripts that often took years. Now you can mass produce them, and relatively speaking, and you see those economies pop in port cities like London and Venice, and you know really grow during the Renaissance. 
and that's a that's definitely a revolution. It changes uh, it changes the way we begin to to conceive about music in the West, um, and conceive about where music's place is. Um, but the recordings, the recording of revolution of the 1940s, to me, is a significant one um, because th- th- there's a a lot of people don't realize, and I, I think very astute readers will realize, is that uh, the recording industry was on really shaky terms for a lot of reasons, and 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 part of that was due to the fact that in the 1920s and 1930s there was the boom cycle and then the bust cycle, and uh, also because it was actually not really easy material to take care of and it didn't have high fidelity type qualities to it so shellac you know is a great it's a wonderful material but it's hard to transport it's it's you know you don't really want your kids playing with shellac because it's brittle uh they break very easily uh and when we get these new polymers in uh, the 1940s that come out of the war and the discovery of, of a magnetic tape by, elect- by American troops in, uh, as they, they take over Germany, you know, as the patents are developed in, in, a, in a wartime Germany, uh, that becomes to really, to really transfigure the economy. And, and uh, what, uh, what musicians had resisted for years, which is mass reproduction, and this is true, like the American Federation musicians had not one but two nationwide recording strikes against just, – just didn't want to record. They, they believed that recordings had replaced them and had displaced them, for instance, in uh, the 1930s when, when um, the – when we see the the Great Depression happen, uh, many bars eliminated musicians and and picked up a much more cost effective uh, jukebox. And you know those bars would, would host uh, duos and trios. Uh, we saw the displacement of uh, by technology of uh, sound films would would displace these these orchestras and orchestras. You know, if you were a film musician and you could stay, in, you, you could play in your hometown. Like you know, you didn't have to hit the road. That was a great thing. And and many times those jobs were unique. Unionized, often not, but many times they were. Uh, so a lot of musicians resisted this, and and we saw two major strikes in the 1940s, led by uh, Petrillo and uh, James, you know, James Caesar Petrillo of the AFM. And uh, after the the second strike, it was pretty clear that uh, that they had no choice but to sort of acquiesce to what records were doing, what recordings were doing, and and build funds around that and reorient labor. So that was a pretty traumatic moment, I think, for many musicians, particularly for unions musicians, uh, that we've many people just don't even know or have completely forgotten. And and then there's this other thing called radio, <laughs> right? I mean, radio was like free music in the nineteen in the nineteen twenties. I mean, that was a uh, in the nineteen late nineteen twenties, early thirties. It's growing, right? We get the first radio broadcasts in twenty two that are substantial, and and then uh, we grow out of that. And and you know, people are. Are no longer buying as much music. They're listening to more music on the radio, and you know, there's this has happened before, and it's going to continue to happen. So, how is the digital music economy changing the role of music labels? Oh, that's a huge one. I mean, I, I think the best way to think about what a music label did in the past is is to sort of like think large first. I mean, what what was a music label? Well, a music label was was essentially risk capital, right? So I, I would bring in uh, my risk capital and I would look at I would, my capital and I would look at uh, talents and I would, I would sign them and realize that many of them weren't going to pan out, but hopefully one would and I would make 
fairly significant profits on that, on, on my uh, productions, particularly the sales of records. And um, they're still risk capital, but they can no longer risk investing only in records, right? I mean, you know, for, so for 50 years or so, 50, 60 years, you were investing in, in some sort of recorded object. Didn't matter if it was an LP, didn't matter if it was a CD, you know, it did matter in some ways, but you know, we're just talking writ large. Um, what you can make back from that unit, and you also, you know, were able to control the the terms of distribution and reproduction. Once you go digital, and you have, uh, you know, I mean, I, I want people to go back and really think if they can, if if they can remember their computer in say, nineteen ninety nine, right? Your computer was maybe networked up by um, dial up. And it might have had a CD player, but not necessarily a burner. I bought my first burner in ninety eight, ninety nine. It was four hundred dollars. <laughs> it was an external attachment. I really yeah. wanted one, and uh, it burned at four times the rate. So what that meant was, right? If I had a sixty minute CD, I got it in fifteen minutes. So yeah, it's, it's crazy. It didn't make you know. It, it, and now every. Heck, you know, people, uh, Apple just got rid of uh, internal DVD and, and uh, CD drives and CD burners on uh, most of their laptops. <laughs> and so we went through this moment where it's just been expected. And, and also, like, you know, other thing about your 99 computer is it might not have had a sound card. Yeah. You know, it, it probably didn't have a sound card. So you weren't really listening to your computer. And then when what Apple's iMacs do and has really pushed the – envelope on this stuff is they're, they're giving you CD burner, CD rippers, DVD uh, players, uh, internal sound cards, speakers, and then they're designed to hook up straight to the internet and particularly uh, DSL connections. It's, uh, it's, it soon becomes game on for the typical consumer. So, uh, you know, no reason to buy these objects, you know, there's just no reason anymore. And most, most children are, you know, like you could say, well, legally there's a reason, but you know, it, you know, trying to trying to legislate behavior in in in, lure, in lieu of convenience and youth, it's just not it's not a good model. So, around two thousand five, two thousand six, it becomes clear that uh, most of the majors have learned that, this lesson, and uh, many of them are slowly but surely moving towards uh, three sixty deals. And what they see themselves now as is is people who are operating with long term brand investment in musicians. Which is a great run-on sentence, right? It's not. It's not. They're not saying like we're developing good music. I mean, you know, some are. Mm-hmm. I, you know, many many independent or vendors are. Many independent labels are. There's no two ways about it. But the majors are signing you, like they're signing a band like Paramore. Not only to release good records. I love the last Paramore record. I really did. I'm not. There's no irony there. I just really enjoy it. I get a kick out of it. But they really see them as as. Uh, as a band that can sell T-shirts, as a band that can be placed in movies, as a band that can uh, that can move uh, consumption in different areas and different levels, because there, the 360 deal is a deal that that doesn't take income just from the sales of records, but demands uh, percentages, substantial percentages from every other arena that a band used to consider their own. So. Uh, a band like like let's take for instance the Ramones. Um, I grew up loving the Ramones. You you went on if you went to go see the Ramones. One of the things you knew the Ramones were famous for was uh, they hadn't really ever had a hit 
during their time. They had Pet Cemetery, but they really didn't have substantial hits. But uh, they were still touring a lot, and part of that's because uh, they made good money touring, and they made good money on their T-shirts. That the Ramones logo is is as, as American to me as apple pie. It really is. It's of that that caliber, and uh, they sold a lot of T-shirts, and that T-shirt money was good money. All right, you. In the 1980s, that might have been, say, a $20 T-shirt, a $15 T-shirt. It might have cost them a buck to make. What's The margins on that are extremely wide, and they could be divvied up with the members of the band and some of the crew. Well, now your label expects a percentage of that, and it might be 30%, 30% gross. They might want 30% gross of your T-shirt sales for as long as the contract lasts. And we don't know how, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but we don't know how long these contracts last. Imagine a, a con- imagine a, you're working with a label and they help develop your logo. One of the questions I've always had is, if they help invest in your logo and your brand, do they get a percentage of that in perpetuity? Right? Because they're, they're managing brands now. They're not managing bands. So with this change, one of the questions that certainly – popped up to me as I was reading the book is, well, how do musicians make money and survive? Because, you know, things like Spotify and Pandora don't really pay very much in royalties. And these 360 deals, when, when bands get them, they seem very much in the label's favor. So what are some of the strategies that you're seeing uh, that musicians are making to, uh, to a, make it? Yeah, no, that's... Uh by the way, I think that's the, the question for – I mean, I, and I don't mean this facetiously. I think that's always been the question for musicians because um, musicians really aren't and, – and for the most part. I mean, there, there's some really smart businessmen and businesswomen that are musicians. But for musicians, for the most part, are, are trained to make great music and provide people with great experiment, experiences. I mean, that's their, their trade. They're not trained to, to think long-term business strategies. Some are. But most aren't. So how do they make money has often been left up to very, very, very trustworthy third parties to help them lead them through that process. And um, this is a tough one because, uh, you know, and this is a question I think that we need to ask uh, personal managers and to be very frank, accountants. (laughs) Accountants are the secret history of rock and roll. Um, there's a great book, uh, and I heard an interview where basically the, the author said the same thing of, about MTV, where you know if you were to ab- able to actually get to talk to accountants, they would tell you how these the money is being made. So the strategies, uh, not to go too far off the off the, the deep end, but the strategies are. Uh, are, are, are nascent right now. They're being borne out. And I'll give you a couple that, that sort of make sense. And this, this uh, part of this is, is to understand what you're selling. Okay, so if you're no longer selling records and people are downloading your records for free, then what are you selling? And what you're selling is an experience, right? In fact, music has always been uh, an experiential good, which is, means it's a, it's a very unique product. It's a product that has to be experienced, one, uh, before you consume it at some level, like typically uh, you don't go in, you know, the, the way that you go in and buy, a, say, a CD is if you go into a record store, if you go to them anymore, and you say, what's this record like? And they say, well, it's a reggae record. Uh, well, there's, a, there's an assumption that you've heard reggae music and that you've experienced it, right? And you understand that it, how it operates and what the expectations are. But uh, it's an experiential good. So 
they've always sold experiences. It's just that they're not necessarily selling them on records anymore. So what kind of experiences can musicians offer? The one that's, that, that doesn't scale, the one that they can control the best is live. However, live music production and touring is hard. It's really hard. It's hard work. It is not easy work. It's it's painful. It's uh, it puts you on the road. It takes you away from families. It, it's uh, it, it it places you in very and I say this with a straight face. I, f- I firmly believe this. It puts you in places that are not healthy environments. Bars and theaters with lots of alcohol are not healthy environments. Yeah, they're not. They're not gyms. They're not YMCA's. They're not health food clubs. And so, you know, the history of, of, of touring musicians, particularly in, a, in an era of, of, of shoddy American health care coverage, is to self-medicate. So, and, and eat bad food, <laughs> right? right? I mean, like, you talk to any touring musician, they will tell you it's like nights spent on the road are, 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 are tough, are very difficult. And I've, I've had several of them in my classroom, and they all bear it out. It's like, look, it's, it's not fun. It's hard work. Okay, so... Touring is one way. But I have a question uh, about touring yeah. because uh-huh. one of the things that I've been noticing is that there seems to be a huge difference in what sort of, um, I don't want to say nostalgic acts, but people like the Rolling Stones or Bruce Springsteen or U2 uh-huh. can charge versus kind of what, you know, I don't know, sort of more mid-range and, and lower-range acts can charge. And I know just in my hometown, you know, you I rarely see a show that's more than 30 or $35. And frequently there's two bands, they're touring. Yeah. And I just can't – I've been trying to figure out in my head, I don't see how they're making any money um, at all at that rate because, you know, a lot of these venues only hold 800, 1,000, 1,200 Well, they, they're not making money on the – they're not necessarily making money on the door. Yeah. I mean it depends on whatever contract they, they, they establish. I mean Fugazi who toured in the, the 90s would be like we want $5 and we want the door but, uh, you know, that's – that's what we're going to do. We're going to take the door, but we're going to book non. Uh, we're going to book. Uh, we're not going to book bars. Yeah. So we'll book a bowling alley, and uh, we'll give. You know, we'll take the door, and you can uh, sell your cokes or you know whatever. But uh, you you establish new new practices. But Fugazi is a totally different one. I don't want to talk about the Discord model necessarily. But the other thing is sell merchandise, yeah. and also uh, crowdsource. So like. Uh, the, the example I want to want to talk about, and the one I talk about in the book, is the one that everyone points to, because I think it's an, an amazing example, because she's been highly successful, and that's Amanda Palmer. Yeah. All right. I, if, if your listeners know, Amanda Palmer raised over a million dollars on Kickstarter for her last album, but she's she's experimenting. It's clear it's an experiment, and she's done this through crowdsourcing. And what she has done is she basically maintained a social connection with fans for a 10-year period of time. I know people often think, well, uh, she just showed up and got a million dollars. That's not the case at all. She uh, is a very active blogger. Uh, she sinks lots of time and money into blogging. She sinks lots of time and money into doing social media. The experience she gives her fans is an experience of being connected to a community and it might be a community of fans, a community of like-minded people, but she's become an experiential leader. So when she tours and she sells her her gear, she sells her her uh, her special editions. Uh, she's she's selling a number of products that uh, might range from T-shirts to uh, 
to uh, CDs with uh, that she signs to uh, uh, limited edition records that sell for $150 plus a download. I mean, uh, it's how they're making money is is a lot of experiments right now. We are in an experiment. We're in a, a phase of, of 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 trying to figure out how that works. Uh, now, the second question is, how does a middle class musician make a lot of money? You mentioned U2 and Bruce Springsteen, and, you know, they're outliers, right? There's only one U2. There's only one Bruce Springsteen. There's only one Rolling Stones. Uh, they've got the corner on that market. Well, and also, don't they have an audience that is sort of conditioned to pay that amount of money? Whereas when you look at younger acts, their audience grew up in a time where they had free downloads and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I think I think well, I think actually the thing with Bruce Springsteen and, and the Rolling Stones is they have an audience, and you too, is they've had twenty, thirty, forty years in the business, and uh, a lot of their fans are, you know, that's the only show they're going to see all year. Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between being like when I was younger. Uh, I'm forty five now, but I was in my twenties. I'd see two shows a week when I lived in Chicago. Had I not been in graduate school, I probably would have gone to see four shows a week if I could have. I, there's no way I'd do that now, even if I lived in New York City. It's just no way. I mean, I got kids. I got a wife. I've got, I've, I've got arthritis in my ankle. It's just not happening. But when you're younger, right, I mean, that's more of a scene, right? So you're going to see local acts. You're going to see uh, mid-size acts. Uh, Bruce Springsteen comes through. There will be people say this is the only show I'm going to see all year. It's worth my hundred bucks, right? I mean, and, and that's the truth of the matter is uh, those guys are going to and they're going to sell their T-shirts and they're going to they're going to go out and, and do that stuff. So how do they make money? Uh, I don't speak with live about live with any sense of expertise, but I can tell you that uh, it's it's not easy, and I think the margins are much thinner than we think they are, and a lot of it's on uh, relying on the gifts of fans and. Uh, hopefully uh, being smart enough to, to make the margins at merchandise. And that's really one of the things about the 360 deal that I find so nefarious is the thing that, like, I go back to the Ramones, that kept the Ramones going was live shows, which they did extremely well and all the time, and, and selling this merch that kept them in Clover. And now, and now labels want a piece of that. Right. So, and, and they feel like they own that piece. They feel like they've invested in that piece and they've set up these contracts. So, you know, I've had a, there's a young country musician in the area. He's a good, he's a really good player. I just really love him. He was in my class and we remained friends and he went back and forth on signing some of these deals. Now he's signed a publishing deal, but he's not signed a label deal. And part of the reason he hasn't signed a label deal, he's like, um, look, I need to, de- I need to build. I need to develop. I need to come in with clout. And I don't want to have to come in and sign these terms to a contract where I, you know, I'm just not making the money that I feel like I deserve. And and he may sign soon, but uh, yeah, he's 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 one of these guys who's been the natural. He knows the game, but uh, he looks at the 360 and says, uh, "Now, mind you, he he had a, he has a college degree. Yeah. How many how many of these musicians have? How many young musicians? You know, take a young kid who's is in hip hop or rock." And a lot of them aren't in college, and they they don't know. Yeah, they don't know. So they're signing a lot of these contracts, and and I I wonder about them. I, I just think legal representation, good representation, cannot be. It just cannot be overstated. The need for that. Well, you you mentioned uh, the situation of Lupe Fiasco at one point. I think in your book where you talk about yeah. how he didn't have a three hundred and sixty deal, and he felt like as a result labels weren't 
really interested in him as, as much as they were in the people that they had sort of a bigger stake in or a, 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 a better chance of getting more revenue out of. Well, yeah, no, he was on Atlantic and he didn't have a 360 deal with Atlantic. He had signed a deal before the 360 had sort of become uh, the de facto contract or, or they, a type of de facto contract. And mind you, we don't know what a standardized 360 deal looks like, or at least I don't as a researcher. The lawyers would know, right? <laughs> Anybody, like, again, the secret history of rock and roll is lawyers and, and attorneys and, and hip hop and any other popping music. But, but he, um, no, what it was is is uh, they basically said, well, you, I have a contract under the contract. And he said, no, we want to renegotiate the contract. And what we're going to do is because this is standard in any standard contract, um, music labels will say we have the right to, to release or keep it in the can. And they can say we don't consider it uh, commercially viable, so we're not going to release it, which – might be a lie, but that's what they did. They kept his music in the can and and sort of tried to play chicken with him. And um, yeah, he was very upset about that. And that's you know, and, and Lupe Fiasco is one of the smarter uh, rappers and one of the smarter acts in, in the business. I think he totally understood what was going on. So you know, he knew, and, and luckily he had his fans, and uh, he was able to to get some uh, negotiation, get some movement on it. But man, that was a tough situation because you know uh, when you bring in a leadership that says, "Okay, we're switching from selling objects to d- managing brands." And mind you, when I say users, right? I said this is user-based economy. Uh, we can see where this is going, right? Imagine if you are a band that is now established as a brand, and you have connected to it on Spotify or Beats or Apple all this data flowing in about what your users are doing and what they're listening to, you know, like Amazon would love to, that's why they're doing this, why they have this service. They want to know everything about your, your activities so that they can target you for the best products possible in the most efficient way. And then turn to their vendors and say, we have a stranglehold on this consumer. Right. I mean, we, we, we know what they want in essence, which is, is pretty kind of, it's it's kind of an amazing uh, data valence situation, and so th- these particular uh, people like want you to get into 360 deals because they want to know what you want. And if Lupe Fiasco's brand works well on sneakers, then they'd love to brand him as a sneaker guy. Or you know, if Wiz Khalifa's uh, brand is, is is smoking pot, then they're going to put him on papers. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when we're going to know this for certain. Right, because we're going to find out your activities and what you're listening to and who your associated acts are. So it's 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 kind of imperative for these these uh, for these labels to do this. And I'm I'm fascinated by it and a bit fearful, but um, I try not to get too fearful. I mean, I think <laughs> there are other things to get more fearful of, but it's it's pretty it's pretty fascinating to see this move. Well, one of the questions then that kind of pops up in my mind. And I and I don't know if I, I know all the details, but you you may. Is I know that Pandora and I, I think it's Pandora and Spotify are really kind of struggling because they uh, with royalties, right? Where so much of their revenues are going to royalties. Yeah. And so I guess part of me is thinking if this were if the data was so valuable, they should be able to be making more money, right? But it seems like their existence at least feels a touch precarious right now. I don't know oh, if that's yeah. accurate. Well, I think Pandora's is, although, 
you know, <laughs> there there'll be days like I get I get uh, I basically get reports on Pandora and Spotify every day in my email, and I, I I open up I think about every other one because there's literally so many of them. You know, it's uh, investors. It's basically the kind of report that you would get if you were. Uh, if you were actually managing uh, your own investments, which I don't do, <laughs> right? uh, it, but I get these kind of reports about Pandora, you know, buy it at six, don't buy it at nine, you know, but, you know, it's, it's on death knell, it's getting investors. Um, look, the issue with Pandora and Spotify, and they're two different issues and, and your readers shouldn't understand that they are, they're, they're literally under uh, the same legislation, but they have two different sets of rules and you know, there's no way in the world that we could do justice to those rules. But uh, let's just look at Pandora for a second here because uh, Pandora is at least public. Spotify is not public yet, right? They have not gone to an IPO. There's rumors that they're going to an IPO and that they've been shoring things up and they brought in a they brought in some people to help them get uh, lined up to make them attractive to investors. We know that they are uh, – we do know about Spotify is that there's uh, investors by each of the major labels that are still in existence. Um, that uh, they uh, Facebook has, has done has, – has made a, a, a really interesting connection with them that offers a lot of graph data that you can work with, uh, social graph data. Uh, we also know that, uh, that Daniel Ek – who is the CEO of, of, of Spotify, is an extremely smart guy. Um, and this is an operation, and I will say this about before I leave Spotify, that is dealing with um, so many moving parts that the fact that they're this far in the game means that a lot of people believe that they can succeed. Uh, a lot of institutions, more importantly, believe that they can succeed. Um and we'll see where that that winds up. It's it's just a, a legislative and and licensing mess. Uh, but but it, you know we could we could probably do another podcast on just that. So let's just look at Pandora for a second here. Pandora exists because of one piece of legislation, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and the DMCA. In the DMCA, did some interesting things. One of the things that they did is they said, "Look, uh, we will." allow Pandora to have access to any piece of music or not Pandora, but we will allow any, uh, uh, anything that acts as if a, it's a non interactive service. Okay. We'll allow you to have what is known as a statutory rate that allows you to access anything within uh, basically the music world that you can license at a statutory rate. In essence, anything. It's why the Beatles are on Spotify, or not, excuse me, the Beatles are on Pandora, not on Spotify. Uh, Spotify doesn't have that because Spotify is known as an interactive service, and there's no such thing as a statutory or compulsory rate, which is a standard rate that's set by a third party. The difference is statutory is set by uh, a judicial or legislative uh, branch, and compulsory is set by a third party that you agree with, typically a performance rights organization. Okay, so... That's already – I've already lost whatever listener I had there. Okay, so, the, so this is legalese. It's set in 1998. And, and he and, – and as a result, uh, Pandora uh, is able to, to license these. But Pandora has, has an interesting problem unlike radio. Okay, so terrestrial radio, the radio you hear in your car that is not satellite, that's not coming through the interwebs, but is an FM, AM radio uh, – 
can play any music that they want with a compulsory rate license. Okay, so so they go to they go to ASCAP, they go to BMI, they go to Sound Exchange, or not Sound Exchange, excuse me, they go to uh, CSAC and they say, hey, look, we want to access your entire catalog. Let's negotiate a license on an annual fee. Okay, let's do that. So we'll pay an annual fee quarterly, and it's based on on uh, your listenership. It depends on the market you're in. So a radio station in New York City is going to pay more than a radio station in Norfolk or in Omaha. And great, they can budget around this, but now they can go to scale. They've paid this fee. They pay you know quarterly. They pay it yearly. They go forward and they, they play their Elton John or they play Little Wayne or whatever they're going to play. Okay. They don't have to pay something that Sound or that that uh, Pandora has to pay, and that is a, a performance right license to musicians. Now, let me explain. Every time that you hear a song on the radio, ideally on the radio, the writer of that song gets paid what is known as a performance right royalty. Now, ideally. They don't always. There are lots of reasons why, but ideally, they get a performance right royalty. The musicians do not. So this is why, if you're a Who fan, Peter Townsend is much, much, much richer than Roger Daltrey. Roger Daltrey does not get paid per play in the same way that Pete Townsend does. Pete Townsend is the writer of most of those, if not all the Who catalog. Roger Daltrey is not. So every time you hear... A Who song, he gets a little tinkle, and hopefully uh, you go out and buy or download a record or go see a Who concert, and Roger Daltrey is going to get some money. <laughs> it's kind of one of those great, uh, great horrible things. But in Europe and, in, and throughout a good portion of the world, there is a performance right for musicians. And there is in the United States, but it's only on digital. So if you're not already lost here, there are two different sets of rules. Pandora play, pays not only the writers – to access, they don't not only pay BMI, ASCAP, and and CSAC, which pays the writers and the publishers, but they also pay a new PRO, which is a performance rights organization. It's a third party that has been given the, the given uh, this insane mission, and the mission is to basically track every play on and, and disperse all these royalties online. To musicians, because get this, there's a performance right for musicians on digital transmissions. The NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters, does not want to pay another royalty. But the structural inequality between the two has placed Pandora as paying out all these royalties, and it gets even worse for Pandora. Because Pandora is digital, Pandora has to pay per play. There is no way to go to scale. Right, there is no one-time fee or one-time quarterly fee. We're going to pay monthly fees on everything that goes out. So every time you listen to Pandora, every time you listen to Pandora, every song, you're they're paying for every play. Which is why if you leave Pandora on in the background, it'll say, "Hey, are you really using this?" <laughs> I don't know if you ever notice if you walk away, it'll be like, "Hey, you you haven't really done anything in 40 minutes. Can we shut you down?" And like, well, no. Uh, you want to listen to it more or yes, because they don't want to pay out for stuff that you're not really listening to. This is just really problematic. It's problematic in so many different ways. Uh, Wyden, Ron Wyden and two congressmen, uh, uh, one Democrat and one uh, Republican, uh, have introduced bills, uh, bipartisan bills uh, known as the uh, – it's, it's the Radio Fairness Act. 
and it's not going it's not gone anywhere not, particularly not in this congress it was introduced in 2012 it's not going anywhere and the whole idea would be to look it, let's set, let's make the let's not choose the winners and the losers in this economy right now we've chosen the winner and the winner is terrestrial radio if you want innovation we have to play the same paying, playing field uh the one thing that every congressman in the united states has a hard time doing is going up against broadcasters so <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if I've lost everyone, but you no. can just see how thorny and crazy this is. This is the Gordian knot. Licensing is the Gordian knot of of uh, of uh, of the music industry. It's just unbelievable. Well, what, one thing that I thought was really great about your book is you talk about the role of the music supervisor in TV and movies and how that's really expanded. And this aspect of licensing seems to really be benefiting. Um, some artists. And I think uh, you talk a lot about the OC, which I thought was kind of interesting, um, but I think it was in other places. So tell us a little bit about um, the music supervisor and how licensing is working. Okay, so let's let's back up here. Now, so one of the things I want to sort of mention here is that in 1999, one of my colleagues, 1998-99, one of my colleagues at uh, Wisconsin, Jeff Smith, who I just talked to yesterday, wrote this great piece called Taking Music Supervision Seriously. And at the time, I had not really taken music supervision seriously at all. I didn't even really know much about it. So I went and read the piece, and it was great. Like, he interviews Jack Nietzsche. Uh, he interviews all these great music supervisors from, like, the 70s and, and 80s and sort of talks about what they did in the 90s. And it's a really wonderful piece. And, you know, he's like, ah, nobody, nobody, cares. they just consider us sort of like uh, hacky bureaucrats. And, and what a music supervisor does is, if you don't know, is, is they're, they're one of, the, if not the major cog in placing popular music on television and on film and in commercials. So if you hear, uh, next time you're listening to your favorite, uh, favorite television show, like, you know, last night, um, you know, I was watching Mad Men. And uh, the music supervisor on that is Alexander Patsavas, who's also the music supervisor for the OC. He was the supervisor for, music supervisor for Grey's Anatomy, the music supervisor for Chuck, music supervisor for the Twilight series, one of the most powerful people in the music industry today. Uh, she has, has basically uh, – she has, has done a lot of curation and clearancing to get people on onto these television shows. Now – Two things happened that made the, these supervisors structurally really, really important. One was the growth of the internet and and cable just ballooned in the 2000s, right? I mean, uh, so you have all these channels. They all need content. They all need music. And they need knowledgeable people who can get that music at a competitive rate and, and place it on there in, in a way that makes their brand pop out. So, you know, the OC has a sonic brand, right? I mean, if I say the OC – Nine out of ten times, Phantom Planets, California, pops into your head. It's got a sonic brand. Uh, and that's really key because you have all this competition. They all need music, but they want music that pops. So finding people who have really good taste and are, are smart enough to get these things cleared become really important. The second thing is for musicians, getting on the radio became much, much harder in the 1990s because in that wave of legislation that happened in the 90s that effectively – uh, built uh, uh, that small boom period. One of them was um, the Telecommunications Act. And the Telecommunications Act consolidated radio and made it much harder for you to uh, 
to find your way on radio at all. Like what was already hard made it much, 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 much more difficult as more and more uh, companies consolidated and basically said, we're going to make our playlists even more uniform. So what was already difficult became near difficult. So musicians started saying, hey, look, I got a better chance of getting on TV and breaking there. And the music supervisor is, to me, like a really interesting thing because uh, as, a, as a practitioner, they're, they're kind of like part DJ, part business uh, negotiator, part lawyer. And um, it's, it's uh, one of these interesting uh, skill sets that you just don't find in that many people. They have to have really good taste in music. They have to understand what legally – they, they, they need to clear and they need to negotiate it. And the negotiations don't happen in any uniform way. So like one of the things you'll never hear from a music supervisor is, is what they paid for something. It's all speculative because they don't want to give away market rate, right? So they don't want to say, hey, look, we paid $500,000 to clear the Rolling Stones to play on Mad Men, which would be an insane figure. But, you know, let's, let's just put it out there. They don't want to say that because then representatives of the Beatles or the Who or somebody else hears that and says, well, you paid my client this, yada, yada, yada. So it's all very um, – very uh, interesting in that way. And, and the music supervisor for me is is like uh, the reason I wrote about this 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 figure, the uh, reason I wrote about them is is that they've come from somebody that was literally considered a, a, a bureaucrat who made really great choices that some people notice to Alexandra Pratsavis, who's you know, a figure like Alexandra Pratsavis, who's not only doing what is effectively A&R for her own label as well as uh, as well as her own uh, music uh, supervision shop, chop shop, but is also considered one of the most important people in the music industry. This just never happened until very recently. Uh, people like Randall Poster, you know, who's who's done music supervision for um, uh, for for uh, the Wes Anderson movies, very important. I was uh, God, I think he did. I, I saw his name on the credit of Boyhood. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, and so the, if you've seen that movie, the, the first thing you hear in that movie is, is Cold Plays Yellow, very yeah. first thing. And uh, it's a movie that's built around memory and growth, and it's built around – in fact, it uses songs as sort of these, these, these markers in time. And you have to be very literate and very skillful in your business business uh, workings because a, a Linklater film just doesn't have that huge of a budget, you know. You you got to go in and say, hey, by the way, you're going to be in a link ladder film, and you know we think it's going to be a great thing. And could you give us this rate? And the reason is again, sync fees are, are highly negotiable. There's there's typically three factors that go into them, and one is popularity. Uh, the other one is how much how you really how much you really need it, and the other is how much you're going to how much you're going to use in the film. And then after that, there's all kinds of negotiations if there's going to be a soundtrack, and it's it's got to be tough work. I've never I'm lucky I've never had to do it. Uh, this may be a little bit beyond uh, what you were writing about, but I know a, a while back I had written, I read an essay by Will I, or it was about Will I Am, who talked about how he was no longer writing pop songs; he was just writing jingles. Yeah. And and <laughs> as I was reading your book, I was thinking, wow, I wonder how many other artists are starting to write music differently because of the way digital music works, the way things, music supervisors. Have you given any thought to that or anything like that? You know. Um, Hmm, that's a good one. Uh, well, okay, so you know, I'm, I'm, I, I don't, I don't want to be called cynical, but I've never been 
uh, someone who thinks that the marketplace doesn't ever influence your decision on how you compose. I mean, you know, like uh, I'm just not that romantic uh, a believer in, in Rocca tourism or any of that stuff. I, I, I but I, I don't get me wrong. I'm not. I love the stuff. I love. Um, I'll even uh, confess to. It's not even a confession. I mean, I, I love like highly commercial artists. I just find them really fascinating. Um, but I've never. I haven't thought that, but it does. I'm not surprised. Let, let's just put it this way: I am really not surprised that he says that because um, Black Eyed Peas, you know, those guys, their cultural moment may be gone, mm-hmm. right? And uh, so, what do you, what do you do? What is if your cultural moment's gone? Um, how are you going to make yourself in the music place? Well, are you going to write jingles? Are you going to write? Um, are you going to uh, think about yourself as a brand? Are, are you writing for placement? I mean, one of the, the my favorite albums that um, I mentioned in the book is is uh, is Moby's Play. Okay. I, I I honestly believe that's one of the most important records of the last portion of the 20th century. I, I fundamentally believe it's a great work of art. I, I don't. Uh, I think it's a very, very important record. Willing to sort of say no. I mean, if, if without that record, a lot of things don't necessarily get reinvigorated and and rethought. Um, if you want to debate that, that's fine. But that that particular record, though, was cleared. Every single, every single, and, and the person who pointed this out to me, by the way, is Daniel Goldmark. And Daniel Goldmark's at Case Western. He studies uh, music for cartoons, and he was living in Los Angeles when that came out, and, and worked at Rhino Records. And understood that that particular record, now, he, everything had been cleared. It had been cleared to be placed on a commercial or in a film or on a television show. And the reason was, is that Moby's music was not being heard on the radio. And he said, you know, he had just gotten dumped from his major label, got picked up by V2, which was uh, uh, Richard uh, Branson's new label, like, you know, he'd sold Virgin years ago and has just started a new label. And they said, well, well, let's try this. Let's try this strategy. And he got all this exposure and had a mega million seller. And uh, now, was he writing for commercials? Mm, don't know. But if you do the research on it, it's pretty clear that this was going to be their business strategy uh, from day one going in. It's like, we're going to try and find a way to place this music in different areas. Uh, you know, does that make him writing simply for jingles? I, I, I don't want to debate that. I don't want to argue, you know, that that changed his mind. But uh, clearly, that's a catchy record. You know, you hear those songs and they stick with you. Um, so is, is, is this a consideration? Yeah, I mean, you want to be exposed so, you know, people have been mixing for car radios for years because they understood their songs had to sound good in a car. Someone's going to buy them. People have been um, have been uh, thinking about how to uh, place their music in movies for years. So I, I, I can't really speak. Is this a change? Yeah. Probably, but it's not anything new. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a commercial consideration that com- – any kind of commercial, uh, any type of popular composer has to has to consider. Well, I think we've taken enough of your time today. This has been a great uh, interview. But before we go, I was wondering, um, what are you working on now? Well, uh, God, there's a lot of things. I just finished a, a couple. I, I just finished a, a, a chapter on um, 
uh, God, this sounds really techy, but sort of modal analysis. And what I mean by that is the modes of uh, economics, like understanding large macro, uh, the advantages of doing large macro uh, analyses of, of popular music economies and scenes, uh, the value of that for a handbook that's coming out. Uh, I don't want to get too far into that. <laughs> it's, it's a little, it's a little heady for even for me at, at uh, ten o'clock in the morning on a Monday. Uh, but I'm, um, I, I also finished a chapter for uh, about stereo demonstration records in the 1950s and how they were developed to prime the consumer. But I've got a number of projects, and one thing I do want to take up is uh, I want to reinvigorate uh, the work I was doing on Soul Train at the time I was writing uh, about it. There had not been one book and now there's three they're, but they're all popular and they're all very good too they're all very good books but there's now three books on the market uh, and and that's kind of interesting but I do think it, it I, I never wanted to write in the way that they wanted to write I'm an academic and I think there's some things that I can contribute to that literature that you're that are good uh, but the big project is going to be on uh, I really want to write about uh, records in the public sphere and uh, maybe for another uh, segment, I can talk about that some other time. But I'm fascinated with uh, with the fact that records, you can use a record, a recording, and you can assemble people of like minds and tastes and even like tastes and not like minds, and you can get them to interact. Uh, so to me, I'm really fascinated with the rise of discotheques in the 1950s. Um, you know, we can actually see you know that that come out of Paris is sort of a new type of, or you know, France is a new type of a, a public sphere that sweeps the nation and and it sweeps uh, uh, through the the U.S. in the '70s. So you see the '50s, '60s, and the '70s it comes in and it, you know, it, it's it's led to a lot of things like um, gay liberation. Uh, as 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 always, you know, the gay liberatory forces have used discotheques as places of affiliation and contact. I think uh, minority groups have used discotheques, and so I'm fascinated with that. And um, I'm not a club person, but I I just like the whole idea of 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 thinking in terms of um, the powers of popular music, which are at one time economic, but at the same time have a possible uh, social and political impact that is not predictable. I mean, who would if you go to a dance? And the reason I bring this up is I used to go dancing a lot to uh, to swing dances. There was always swing dance records. I very rarely went to go do, do swing dancing with bands, and I became friends with a lot of people I would never become friends with. People had totally, completely different uh, political affiliations, sexual beliefs, uh, and I'm, I was fascinated that that had happened because the rest of my life I'd spent time in punk rock clubs. And so like, you know, it's just kind of amazing to me, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know how to explain it, but I sort of want to investigate that. But that sounds very good. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me yammer on. It's, uh, I wish I could bring cogency, but, uh, if your listeners buy the book or get, more importantly, if they get it to their libraries, cause it's very expensive, I would suggest they just ask their library to get it for them. Uh, if they do that and they want to talk to me, they're more than happy to uh, just send me an email at T-J-A-N-D-E-R-S. That's T-J-Anders at O-D-U E-D-U. You've been listening to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. I've been speaking with Tim Anderson, the author of Popular Music in a Digital Music Economy, Problems and Practices for an Emerging Service Industry. Thank you for listening.